from Cali what part I'm from I grew up in Orange County I lived in Los Angeles for a while in Whittier and I've lived in Riverside I've lived in Indio Indio was the last place I also lived in Arizona for about 10 years I've been here and there what's Los Angeles like it's nice good food it's really good food (laughs) it's really good food that's what I miss the most. The yeah. Food. Yeah. And what what ethnicity are you? Mexican. Awesome. So what was it like growing up as a Mexican American girl in in Los Angeles, you know? Oh, well, it was fine. I mean, everybody majority of the people there are Mexican. Yeah. So it wasn't really a big deal. So as you're growing up and whatnot, how do you get into uh embalming? So basically what happened with that is um I think I was right out of high school. I was doing like a tour of colleges or whatever. And then I saw like one college had like uh, cadavers. And I I thought, oh, okay, that looks interesting. And then I looked more into it and I found a mortuary science program in Cyprus. So I did that right out of high school. Went to mortuary college and became an embalmer. So... With Mortuary College, how many years is it, or what's the... Well, back then, it was a while ago, so it was about two years. And then you had to serve a two-year apprenticeship. And during that two-year apprenticeship, that's um, before you get licensed as an embalmer. You um, have to embalm, like, 200 bodies total, and you have to serve under someone else's license. And then you have to pass the state board exam. So I did that. I had the privilege of working in a high-volume mortuary. It was like a huge mortuary cemetery combination. Where? Whittier. Okay. And they did um, like 5,000 bodies a year at that time, which is astronomical because the average funeral home does like 300 bodies a year. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Why was, why was it so active? Because of the volume. It was a huge place. It was like a warehouse of death, I guess. But, I mean, are, are bodies coming in from like, let's say – from a Compton, from a... From know, everywhere. From everywhere in the state or just in that, that everywhere county? Everywhere in the state. Because it was really... It's a really prestigious mortuary. So okay. people would have bodies from Los Angeles. And I would also do the pickups, too. Wow. So we would go pick them up, different parts of the state. Different parts of the county. I mean, California's huge. LA's huge. Sure. But, you know, it was, like, really a nice cemetery place. But they were very popular. They had a lot of cases. Now, you being somebody that's picking up mm-hmm. uh, a cadaver at this point, right? Um, what's that process like? I mean, you know, how do you guys get the phone call? Is there a preservation process that can be done on the family's behalf beforehand? Or are you just showing up and like, here we go? Well, basically, they call her like a first call. They call in, report the death, give us the address. Sometimes it'd be a convalescent home, a residence, a hospital, Um it could be corners, depending from where we would have to pick it up. If it was a residence, two people would go. If it was no residence, just one person would go. So it was fun doing the residence calls because be two of us would go pick them up. I want to say fun, but driving around and just doing pickups, it was, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, at least you're with somebody at that point. Yeah. It's not the awkward sensation mm-hmm. of, you know, unfortunately – a corpse back there yeah you know um when you're in mortuary school at what point are you like oh my god like i'm really here like what was it like i mean do they have actual specimens there are you working on like plastic bodies like what what's no, going actual on bodies you're actually working what was that like was that the first time you had ever seen a dead body no at the college when i was touring i saw one okay and i thought okay well that's that's interesting it didn't bother me for whatever reason. And then when we started to work on the bodies, starting to raise the vessels, the arteries, to practice, it really wasn't a big deal to me. Now, when you're talking about raising the vessels and the arteries, what do you mean? Well, for the embalming process, we have to know where all the main arteries are and the vessels, so that way we can locate them and make incisions to pick, up, to pick them up and inject the formaldehyde in them and then drain the body of the blood. 
And formaldehyde is what preserves it, right? right. It maintains it. Right. How long does formaldehyde last? How much time do we have from the time it's filled up to when, you know, things start reverting? It depends because there was a time when the bodies in the cemetery, they wanted the hills were shifting. So all the bodies were kind of like, um, the caskets were kind of like. Moving around like Tetris almost. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to dig them up and remove the bodies, replace them in new caskets. So we'd have to jump on the graves, get them, retrieve them, put them in new caskets. And some of the people looked like they were just embalmed yesterday. Some of the people looked like the Crypt Keeper. Wow. Some people were in pieces. It just depends. I mean, some people preserve better than others. Wow. That, that's really interesting that you mentioned how some people looked brand new, mm-hmm. right? That's actually in the Odui that they last one, when they actually buried Agayu and they um, exhumed him so many years later and he was like brand new. Mm-hmm. And that's, and mind you, this is, you know, ancient embalming techniques, you know, right. going all the way back to the Egyptians, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that phenomenon, and when they saw that, they decided to deify him because they're like, yo, this guy hasn't decomposed, so he must be immortal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, ancient thinking. But um, were there any uh, calls, like when you're going to actually pick up these uh, these corpses, these bodies, was there any call that, you know, kind of stuck out to you or, you know, left a lasting effect, or were they all pretty smooth? I mean, Well, you know, sometimes we'd show up and there'd be, the families would be unaccepting of the death. Yeah. I remember one time, and this family, I think they were Loatian, we went to a house in L.A. to go pick up the body. They wouldn't let us take the body because they were insistent that the body was going to rise per their faith. Okay. So we were waiting and waiting. I'm like, look, um, you're going to have to call us back if he doesn't rise because, you know. It was a process, yeah. Yeah. Other times we've had families argue um, while we were there. Other times we've had them intoxicated. And while we were there, and um, I think the most interesting one that was when you find them in the toilet. Like they've they've transitioned right there on the toilet. On the toilet. Heart yeah. attack, possibly something yeah. like that. So it's always kind of challenging because they're rigored at this point. Rigored they're meaning stiff. they're stiff. Yeah. Okay. And so you have to kind of get them on the gurney. Or sometimes we show, we've shown up to places and they're over 400 pounds. Wow. Um, well over 400 pounds, and it's just me and one other person, so we have to call them back up to help us transport them out. Wow. Yeah, you, uh, you definitely don't expect that. When people are watching CSI and whatnot, and you see all these bodies, that they're, they're like aesthetic, right? It's a bunch oh, of models yeah. That, yeah. Are, that are dead, you yeah. know? And it, it's easy to see now by what you're saying that that's not the case. It's very not the case because, when you know, it's so peaceful in the movies because yeah. their eyes are closed and they look peaceful. No. In actuality, most of them look like they saw a bunch of demons before they died. Eyes open? Eyes open, mouth wide open, and we have to literally kind of rigor it shut. Yeah. And then wire it shut, or sew it shut, to get it, you know, to stay natural. What is, do they teach you, like, massage techniques and things yeah. like that to be able to, you of know, course. relax the muscle and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, because you have to know how to position it and how to set it so it looks natural. Yeah. Wow. So... Okay, you get through school, mm-hmm. you're on calls, you're moving around. Um, you know, what are what are some of the, the things you're seeing, like, in the mortuary? Like, what what is what is that day like? You know, like, you wake up and, like, I'm a mortician, I'm going to work. What, what was your day like? What, oh, my typical day back then, would I'd go to work. I can anticipate embalming anywhere from 8 to 10 people a day. Jesus. And um, that's if I don't have any calls. Then if I had to go on the first call, then... Um, Maybe we embalm five, pick up a few, depending on the situation. So, I mean, you know, because L.A. has quite a reputation, and this may be not the case, but was this like, were you, when were you doing this? The 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The late 90s. Late 90s. Was there a lot of violence going on at the time? Were you getting a lot of trauma? Was it more like regular nine-to-five um, people? A lot of them were normal people. Okay. Um, when I did, went into freelance, which I just did, I stopped working at the mortuary and I just did freelance embalming. Okay. So I'd go embalm at different accounts, like different mortuaries all over LA County. With your license? Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of them were in the hood, like yeah. East LA, Inglewood, stuff like that. Yeah. And those, that was the areas mainly where I would encounter those type of bodies. But uh, it's like interesting because the ones that were shot, they were usually filleted by the coroner. 
So what do you mean fillet by the coroner? They cut them up with the wine incision. Okay. And sometimes they would make the incision like the wine incision on the chest. Yes. And they cut it all the way through the butt crack. Okay. So I'd have to flip them over to sew up to suture. Yeah. And then if they had bullet holes, I had to like flip them over, make sure I, you know, sew up every hole. I would imagine that it could be a little bit disturbing, especially, you know, us being minorities. Unfortunately, you might see a lot of us on that table. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, and just seeing the way we're transitioning and perishing in these neighborhoods and whatnot, you know. It was always a shame because a lot of them were so young. What are we talking about, like 17, 20? 20s, yeah. yeah, late teens, 20s. And, um, and that was our, our bad car accidents. Yeah. Those were always, because they were usually young. Yeah. So that was always sad. Now, and this might be a very large question to answer. I don't know. So many years doing the same thing. What was one case that really stuck out to you? Right, that still, I'm not going to say haunts, but maybe still sticks with you or was an experience that, you know, you haven't been able to, like, let go of, possibly. Well, well the one I remember the most is I was embalming this, um, this dad. He had a seizure and died. Yeah. However... When he died, he was giving his baby a, a bath. The baby drowned. Wow. So that was kind of hard because I thought, this is so sad. This guy died having a seizure while bathing his son. Wow. So. And you had to process both of them? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I thought that was really sad. Not always remember that. Yeah, definitely. You know, just being a father, I mean, you, you know my daughter very well. Mm -hmm. Her being a certain age group, like, you know, it's. The things we go through as human beings, right. you know, and the things that I respect people who have done what you've done so much because you're literally confronting the ugliest part of humanity in existence. You know, we're talking about death, you know, something that is silent, something that is, you know, has solitude. Like it's just you and a being, you know, whether it's lifeless or not. And, um, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to go through that but what I think is important is that in society that we come to terms with we're not always going to be here not everybody's as fortunate to have as much time as others and why it's so important to enjoy every day because you know when you hear a story like that real life account um it's chilling and it's 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 meant to motivate us to love each other and I think really spend time and and lead a healthy life and really appreciate the time we do have because it can happen at any moment I mean um, you being somebody that's initiated in Odisha, Ifa, etc. I mean, were there any spiritual encounters that you noticed there? Like, did a light flicker? Did something get thrown across the room? Or was it just a pretty dead environment? Like, what, what were you, did you ever experience any, like, phenomena? No, of course. You know, I would always hear noises. I'd always hear, like, there are people in other rooms, but there's no one there. Um, one particular mortuary, um, Something would always happen when I would go there. And I'd be there at, like, in the middle of the night, about midnight, one in the morning. Because yeah. they would call us to work at night. So that would be done in the morning. And, of course, I was by myself. And my scissors just flew off the table and landed on the ground, standing up and paled on the floor. And then the paper started flying around the room. No reason for the paper to fly around the room. So just stuff like that. But I still had bodies to do, so I just kept working. You kind of just keep it moving. You keep it moving. And it's crazy you say that because, I mean, obviously I've never been in that scenario, but, you know, even in the house sometimes, the various places we've lived, I think the religion provides you a little bit more solace. But, you know, you'll see a random drape just, like, fly up and the fan's not on or, you know, a toy will move or, you know, things like that. I, and me and your godmother always kind of joke, like, wow, these muertos really suck because they're really, mm -hmm. they're not very good at scaring mm -hmm. anybody. You know, we don't know if it's their lack of, you know, um, creativity or if it's just us being so callous mm -hmm. to spiritual phenomena at that point. But, um, I mean, th that's a movie waiting to happen just based on what you've set up until this point, you know, and, um, I always remember a specific case cause we talk so much, you, mm -hmm. you being uh, the face of the Botanica pretty much at this point being there. Um, there was the one case you had always mentioned about an overweight, um, person where they kind of exploded. Oh, that, yeah, that happens. I would get like, 400 pound people that are blistering because they're so decomposed or there's this one thing that happens. So are these people like just sitting in the house until somebody realizes and then they call or are they blistering before because they're of their weight? Well, they're blistering when they die. They, for some reason, they decompose fastly. 
And there is a bacteria that gets on dead people. It's called um, tissue gas. Whenever a body encounters tissue gas, it swells up. Okay, so that's why you get that. That they're so distended, like unnatural. I mean, their eyes are going to bulge out. They're just huge. And then when you touch the skin, it's like Rice Krispies because of all the gas. Yeah. And they smell horrible. Sure. Horrible. So, and then the thing is, if you don't disinfect properly, the other bodies will get it. So you have to. So it's contagious. It jumps. To dead people, yes. Yeah. So it's just weird. But I know it seems so funny because I'm so small and I would get like the largest people. It was like a joke. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've literally had like this one case I remember. It was like this lady, she was like around 400 pounds and she was on the table and she was autopsied. Already. She had already been, you know, looked at. So I basically had to undo the sutures, remove the organs. The organs are in a bag. I have to treat them separately. Yes. And then I'm literally have to stand in buckets to look into her cavity because she was just so big. Yeah. And then she was like dripping a little bit. She was dripping oil on the side of the table. Yeah. So I had to clean that up. And then I have to really like wrestle to get her positioned properly so she'll fit in the casket and suture her up and get everything back in. You're doing this all alone? Yeah. Good Lord. So I was pretty strong back then. Yeah. I used to work out like a fiend. Okay. But, but now, I, now I wouldn't dare to do it because I'd hurt myself. Sure. But back then I was pretty fit. But yeah, I was wrestling these. And moving these people, but it was all movement, maneuver. Yeah, a lot of technique. A lot of, a lot of technique angles, a lot of gravity. Mm-hmm. How uh, how long did you do this for? Let's see. I think I stopped doing it in two thousand twelve. Yeah, I just got burned out. So how many years? Oh, from like it started in nineteen ninety nine. Thirteen years. Yeah. So thousands and thousands yeah, of people. Yeah, just a high volume. Yeah. Is there a high burnout, like turnover? I would imagine, like, do you do you ever meet a 20-year embalmer? Or? Yeah. I mean, the ones you do that stay in it for the long run don't have the volume. Yeah, they're, you know, they're in one of these 300-a-case yeah, year type places. Exactly. But when I did high volume, I, I just got tired. I'm like, ugh, the bodies were getting bigger, and the bodies. Did you notice that, that people the people were becoming progressively more overweight over a decade? Yeah, and then the medical, condi- medical conditions were just horrible. People with all these cancers, with diabetes. I mean, I'd have people on my table with legs that look like beef jerky. Riddled. Yeah, they look. They were alive like that, and I'm just, like, blown away. So a lot of stuff, or people that would come from university hospitals, they do a lot of, you know, radical procedures over there. So they had tubes coming out of everywhere. So it was just an, an opinion about to involve. So you mean, like, at universities where they're doing, like, experimental procedures on right. people? Cutting-edge procedures. But then when we get them, they have tubes coming out of the chest, out of the back. So they wouldn't even remove things. It's like, no. hey, here it is. It's like, here. Yeah. So when things go wrong, they call you. Well, yeah, when they pass I on. Mean, when they pass. And that, yeah. that's another thing to think because you have a lot of people who are like, no, I'm doing this study, mm. this placebo, whatever. But you're actually seeing when things don't go right, you know, when people yeah. have no other options and then we're trying something new, mm-hmm. which the medical community really doesn't like to talk about, I notice. Um being that the majority of the information we have, I think, on medicine was through experimentation or, you know, they even say Leonardo da Vinci used to go into like the catacombs or, you know, underground to yeah. be able to process and illustrate, um, you know, anatomy and mm-hmm. things like that. So when you really look at what saves us today, it's so incredible how we've learned to preserve life through analyzing death, mm-hmm. you know, but um, what a chapter. So what do you do after you're not a mortician? You know, where, where does life take you at that point? So did you take time for yourself? or would, At that time, go? I moved to Arizona. I was married at the time. And um, I think I did real estate for a couple of years. But then the market crashed. Sure. So like 08? Yeah, around 08. So then, um, and it, even then I was still, you know, drive back to California to embalm. Okay. You know, just Occasionally. Was, yeah, yeah, because it was close enough. And yeah. And, but then um, I decided, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired. So, I, that's when I became a corrections officer for a state prison. How tall are you? 4'8". There's not many 4'8 corrections officers, no, I would imagine. No, sure wasn't. Or embalmers, so. So, um, what was it like that first day, the interview, or the first day of training? Well, know? the first day of training, um, I had to go to a nine-week academy in Tucson. And that was, that was interesting. 
it sucked because I was, you know, it's everything by height. So I was always in the front. Sure. I got pepper balled. It hit, like, direct hit at me. What's a, what's a pepper ball? It's when they, it's what the officers shoot to kind of, um, for a Car riot. Anything. Okay. Pepper ball. So it's just imagine something explodes and then I'm just like, your eyes are burning, your throat's burning. There's no way to avoid this. There's no way. So It's in the air. Yeah. That... I think the thing I remember the most is getting beat up. So, like, what, what is it? Part like? of the training. Okay. They show you the, remember we're talking about pressure points. Sure. They teach you. So, but they got to hit you. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be real. Yeah. And I remember the class after me, and yeah, they, they hit hard. Yeah. They're not holding back. When but they who, who are these? The teachers? The, is your classmates? So, the trainers have been basically doing this for 20 years, beating up people professionally, and they're, <laughs> they're just ragging on like. it. It's a gang initiation, <laughs> basically. That's basically what it was. I remember when it was that, it really sucked, because they really hit you. Sure. But then I remember, like, a week later, I saw this other girl. She was covered in bruises. Yeah. I think after that, they stopped. Okay. They calmed down. Wow. But it, it was intense. But it was interesting, because, I mean, it was fun, but it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, the courses weren't hard. But uh, I'd always find a way to avoid the sergeants because the minute the sergeants would see you, yeah, you know, they just start start drilling you. you. Mm-hmm. So, but it was nine weeks. I had to live there, stay there, do PTO. Um, but it was it was fun for a little bit. Then when you got to work in the prison, it was different because you know there's a difference between what you learn and once you're there. What was, was what was that first day like? <laughs> it was funny. Well, it wasn't funny, I should say. But my first day, someone died right in front of me. It was that an happened. An inmate just, um, I think he had a heart attack or something, and he just died. Like as soon as you're walking onto the yeah, yard? Yeah, like literally my first day, and I'm training. And this guy, we go to this one house where the inmates are housed. And was that like a dorm? Yeah. Okay. And then he passed away right in front of us. So what happens then? Well, they, they had to get him out. But then, you know, I didn't really... They pretty much just reported. They have to do an incident report. And then later on, they, you know, talk to me like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, like yeah, I'm okay. Does anyone seem phased, like the other inmates? Well, the inmates were f- affected, absolutely, because that's their silly. Yeah. So, of course, they were affected. Yeah. And they felt, I'm sure they felt we should have done more, but, you know, if someone's passing away in front of us, there's not much we can do. The other CO gave him CPR. Yeah. But it was too late. So, first day dorm i mean what are you noticing what are you seeing how are you being treated well it was an open yard um what prison was this are are you able to say in arizona okay it was an open yard it was a state prison and it was the general population the general population they're you know a bunch of young disrespectful kids so of course i'm going to get called everything one guy even bet sodas that i would quit and then um i wound up not quitting so he lost I had to buy the other make soda. So they would do bets all the time. Okay. So, and they were just like an open yard. So it was like buildings that housed 200 inmates. So as a CEO, you kind of had to watch them, you know, do your security checks, do your walks, do count. And a lot of times I would find myself that I was alone in one building with 400 inmates. Oh, God. Yeah, it was interesting. What, um, so many questions running through my mind. What, um... How do I put this? I mean, when, when we're talking about the interactions, I mean, you know, why are, why are you alone? Are we understaffed? Um, like, how, how are you necessarily being supported to be able to handle all of these different characteristics and personalities? I mean, being your stature, being a woman. I mean, at, at, at any moment when you're alone with 400, you know, yeah. inmates, are you like, oh, my God, it yeah. could pop off right now or something could happen to me? In the beginning, it wasn't like that, but um, when it, not too long after I was there, they changed the yard. It became a sex offender yard. The sex offenders were easier to manage because okay. they were just more calmer. They were older. They were quieter. They were polite, yeah. but they're sex offenders. Yeah, yeah. So you had to be constantly on your yeah, guard. Yeah, predators, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have a radio. You have um, basically, I think one time I was like, I had like a kind of a stalker inmate that would stalk me. Yeah. And he and I got into an altercation. And then my radio wouldn't work. Oh, well, Lord. this is great. Because I, I was a little 
mad at him because he'd always stalk me and I'd always reported it. And nothing would happen. Yeah. So I was kind of frustrated. Yeah. So I went off on him and said stuff maybe I shouldn't have said. Yeah. But I was spicy back then. Sure. I mean, you got to be. You're in, yeah. you're in the jungle. Yeah. In gladiator school. So, um, but luckily someone saw that we were in an alter, you know, yelling at each other. Another inmate? No, an another, another another officer. officer. So he came and helped. Yeah. But yeah, there are situations like that where I'd be stuck alone with these inmates. And I'm like, well, damn. But believe it or not, I'm very soft-spoken, but I yell abnormally loud. Yeah. It's like, it's like a spectrum. Like either we're low mm. or we're like going off. So they knew, like when I come down, they even tell me to shut up all the like, like, well, don't act up. Yeah. Don't shut up. Yeah. But, you know, but they heard my voice would boom through the buildings. Yeah. It would just boom. My buildings would always be clear in front. There'd be no loitering. Yeah. So I kept it pretty. Tight ship. Like, I think that's why they left me alone a lot, because I could manage the 400 inmates. What, what level of security was the prison? Medium. Medium. It came to a point where they would rotate us. Like you would go to other sites? Yeah. They rushed us to the other, because there's a complex, to the other buildings. So I left the medium security to go work in the maximum security. Oh, wow. And those, everyone is locked up. Sometimes they're two to a cell or confined. Then you had the mental health area, too. So when we're saying locked up, I mean, is it, are they locked up 23 hours a day, 24 yeah, hours basically. a day? So Sometimes they, they would get wrecked, but we'd have to take them their food. So we really have to do, you know, check on them, make sure they're still alive. And this is their whole life. They're mm -hmm. just in a cell. Mm -hmm. They get recreation sometimes, but their meals are delivered. Right. There's a bathroom in the cell, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And this is their existence. Right. I mean, what are you hearing from the cells? Like, did you ever do an overnight shift, I would imagine? Like, yeah, I used to work graveyards for a while. You know, people screaming at night. Is it like an eerie silence? Like, what are... Well, it was always the kind of a, a very oppressive feeling. I mean, in the medium security, it still felt oppressive, but not as oppressive as the maximum security. Yeah. It's just so depressing. But a lot of these people, you just look at them and you're like, I just know they're gone. They're mentally gone. Or you could see some of them are just, there's something dark in them. You yes. could just see it. Now, with the max security, I mean, are all these people doing life? Are they death rowing? Or they're doing a long time. And we 20 had plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, death row. They were actually, the death row people were nice. Yeah. There's a level of acceptance there, mm -hmm. I would imagine. Exactly. You know, so max security. What's the pressure point you're depending on in a life-threatening situation? Let's say all the other ones fail. Where are you hitting? <laughs> Wherever I can. Wherever we can. There's one in every part mm -hmm. of the body. Yeah. And depending on what situation or if someone, how close someone is, you know. It depends because we resort to pepper spray. Yeah. First. We would pepper spray him first. But then that gets on you, so it's really yeah, you know, kind of counterproductive. Now, I mean, how long, how long were you a CO for? For about five years. Five years, that's a long time. Now, and once again, this may be a huge question, but what experience stuck with you the most over your tenure? Because, I mean, w look at all the things we could delve in. I mean, you go from medium security, you're dealing with general population, you're dealing with undesirables such as predators, then you go to max. You're dealing with people doing 20-plus life. You're finding the people on death row to be very courteous and polite. I mean, even before you answer that, like, what, did, what is it like? I mean, because you could be having a perfectly, and I guess this is where the sociopathic undertones can really come into these interactions. I mean, you know, you may be having a perfectly decent conversation with an inmate, mm -hmm. and may, he may be in for, you know, whatever homicide or whatever heinous act. I mean, how... I mean, when you leave, are you just leaving work at work? Does it stick with you at all? Like, how are you dealing with that? It changes you. You, it, you take it out of work. Because it made me a very cold, very, um, um, for lack of a better words, a bitch. You know, I was very, I was kind of like a mini Karen. Yeah. You know, and it's just, that's not me. Yeah. So it kind of changed me outside. Like I was taking that, you know, that same feeling I had at work where I had to be on the defense. I had to be cold. I had to be, you know, to on alert. Point, yeah. And I had to be, I was like that in the outside. I noticed, you know, when I interacted with other people too from the prison, they were kind of the same way too. Wow. And I'm like, you know, this, this isn't me. 
at that time I decided I it wasn't for me and I needed something more spiritual. What um of all those five years, what's an experience that stuck with you? Or that really impacted you, like, oh my God, that just happened or Well, there are a few. I mean I think the one I think the thing that I thought was sad when inmates will first come in. Yeah. When they're new in the yard, they call them fish. So the fish would come in and I remember this one young kid he was so polite, ma'am, 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 so polite, asking me a million questions. I was like, okay, but he was, he was a kid. Like three months later, that kid was gone. And that, that after that, he was like, yo, see yo. I'm like, oh. then, he got, got then he got tatted up. So I'm like, oh. it's a shame. On. Yeah. It's, it's scary because, I mean, there's plenty of kinds of fish, right? You mm-hmm. got the tadpole and then you got the shark and... What an environment. I mean, you know, you have God brothers that did time, um, you know, friends that I know that have done time. And, um, you know, regardless of how they come out, there's always some form of institutionalization. Somehow, there's no way you're coming out of that unaffected, whether it's that, whether it's the military, whatever it may be, there's trauma there. And, um, you know, just hearing you talk about it, you begin to realize the real need for reform. You know, you look at other prison systems and correctional institutions across the world. I was really shocked. I think it was in Sweden. Um, you know, as long as you haven't done anything too heinous, you know, you have a cell. Right. They have g- nice cells. You I have saw a nice that. cell. Mm-hmm. You're given an iPad. You're educated. You have mandatory therapy. Like, there, there's real reform there. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can recognize that there's still an ounce of humanity and sanity there, they're trying to reconstruct you and reintroduce you back into society. Now, mind you, this is just hearsay and conspiracy, maybe on my behalf, but why are we, being the most powerful and influential nation on earth, putting people in a position that's already crippling to be completely incapacitated by not providing any real resources to them? Like, for example, um, one of your God brothers explained that if you're not doing over a certain amount of time, you can't get collegiately educated. Um, you know, no one wants to go see the psychologist because then they think you're talking too much. And, you know, there's, there's no safe environment there, you know? So it's, it's really disheartening because we look at the demo, the demographics that really house, you know, these sites and, um, it's literally imploding society, you know, and it, it may be for economic gain, depending on how you look at the, uh, the structure of it all. So, you know, to, to speak with someone such as yourself who saw it, it became so unbearable to the point that after five years, it's like you, you, you lasted less time there than with the embalming. Yeah. Ironically. And that says quite a bit when you would rather prefer um, for whatever reason to be around the dead than around the living. This says quite a bit about our society right now, you know? So now you mentioned spirituality now after, you know, these are, these are huge portions of your life up until this point. Um, How did it affect you spiritually? you found Ifa, I mean, you're, you're, you're seeing mountains of dead people, you're seeing the, the politics of prison. How did it affect you spiritually? Oh, it impacted me. I mean, it, it drained me, and I just didn't feel right. And the interesting part is, like, when I was, had my first mortuary job, like right out of mortuary school, um, what I came to learn about Santeria was from the gardener. Really? And he mentioned to me, hey, I have a friend of Santero. Did you get a reading? I'm like, and I wasn't really looking, but I thought it was interesting. And I went and got a consultation. And and I was really tripped out. I was like, okay, this stuff is kind of real. Yeah. But then I, I didn't pursue it. When I moved to Arizona, I met some friends. And that's where I met my Reiki master, Johnny. And we were in a ghost group, in a ghost hunting group. and A ghost hunting group. Yeah. That was back in the day before it was really popular. So, okay, because we, we got to delve into this now. I'm sorry. Um, ghost hunting. Yeah, so that's when I became more spiritual, around the 2010, 2009. How did we find each other, you know, as far as ghost hunters? Meaning, like, I would imagine the internet wasn't what it was back then. How did that come about, and how are we finding places to hunt like are we hearing about this haunted house somewhere well it it was grace you know rest in peace she passed away unfortunately but she had this group called ghost to ghost 
and people would contact them to go investigate their houses. And for some reason, I just caught an ad that said, you know, looking for a person to kind of help investigate. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm here. And at that time, I was new to Arizona, so I didn't really know a lot of people. Sure. And I became good friends with all of them. And then I learned about Reiki through Johnny, and that just started really opening my eyes to spirituality. Yeah. And then we went to these places, because I've, I've had paranormal experiences before. Obviously, yeah. You know, growing up, the mortuary, so it wasn't nothing new, so I thought, I can do this. But we would go to different parts of Arizona, and... A lot of the times, there was, like, nothing there. It was just, like, waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen, but nothing really happened. Sure. But there were times, it's one house in particular, because Johnny, he's such a gifted Reiki master. He's really interesting because he would walk into a room and the lights would change, would flicker as he walks by. Wow. Each light. So like the energy. His the energy movement, is yeah. intense. And at that particular house that day, I literally had to move aside because someone was passing by. But it was no one. It was a spirit. So that was interesting. We've gone to places where I, like, literally got hit. Like, something hit my legs. And I almost buckled over. So there's stuff out there that we can't explain. And that's what really opened my eyes to spirituality. I'm like, I really got to delve more into this. And at one point, we were investigating my house because something was there. And... They call this a Frank's box, but it, all it is is static noise, mm-hmm. and you hear words. Well, when I heard it say my name, I was like, oh, shit. Wow. It's saying my name. My name's unique, so. Yeah, you have to intentionally say that right. name. It's not like John. Yeah, so I was like, whoa, that's trippy. So after that, I was like, wow, I got to look more into this. I got to learn and see what's going on. What is this? And then eventually... Um, I came across my friend, and when I moved back to California, not too long after the prison thing, then I really started getting into spirituality. That's when I met my original padrino. Yes. And he, oh, he was wonderful. Yeah, really rest, sweet yeah. man. And, and yeah, he just really explained stuff to me as best as could, because I really didn't understand. I was so green. Yeah. But what he did helped me. He gave me a lot of clarity and stuff and really helped me along. Because it became after the prison, and I was in a like, dark place. But he really pulled me out of it. And then I'm like, well, I'm, I need to, this really helped me. I really need to get into it more. So at what point, I guess, was it after you met us that you're really like, oh, my God, I'm going to see my Manorula do Orisha? Or, you know, what really, what sp- spurred you into, like, really, like, saying, wow, I'm going to go head first into this? Well, after meeting you guys, yeah. you know, because I realized, because my padrino blessed his heart, I really didn't understand a lot of what he was talking about. Yeah. But you, when you explain stuff, you make it so much clearer. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. Yeah. You know, when there's, even though I speak Spanish, but he spoke Cuban Spanish. Yeah, it's, it's a I don't even, difficult to I don't understand us sometimes. <laughs> Cuban Spanish is a little bit of, you know, Spanish, you got a bunch of African yeah. It's and then the speed and the grammar, it's just it's not yeah. and then Mexicans, you guys speak so well, really. Like you, speak you know, slower. Yeah, it's nice yeah. and slow and then you know, real diction. You can actually find the words you guys say in the Spanish that de- like dictionary. Yeah. There's some words you say like that we say that you'll never find anywhere. So but um you know, I, I wanna congratulate you. You just got done with your year in white. Just yes. got done with your for the people that know Akira. It must be um, a little weird to see her out of white, you know, being that she, uh, you know, did her year in white at the store. Yeah. Uh, thank <laughs> you. How, uh, how was the year in white like? It was rough. Yeah. It was the worst year of my life. Yeah, it was rough. It was not what I expected. I thought it would be more peace. It well, was peaceful, I ain't going to lie. It was yeah. peaceful. But it's too peaceful sometimes. It's like too quiet. Yeah. It's very quiet. A lot of felt isolating. Yeah. But one thing it did teach me that I came out with is appreciation. Yeah. I didn't realize how much I was taking for granted. Yeah. You know, we take life for granted. People always complain, oh, this, oh, that, oh, this. And then little things. I'm like, you're here, you're alive. You know, be grateful. It's like us just going now to get some lunch, like, and you're saying, wow, I still haven't even done these things yet, you yeah. know. 
Like, you go a whole year without a spray of perfume. You go mm-hmm. a whole year without going out after 6 p.m. Like, yeah. just things like that. You're like, and it's, it's, it's actually, you know, it's an institutionalization within itself. Mm-hmm. You're traumatized, you know. There's a little PTSD from it, to be right. honest with you, because we have to break you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the military, unfortunately, like prison. Like, that year in white is to break you, you know, to completely take you down to your simplest and, and weakest form, your humblest mm-hmm. form. Right. And then from that, we're able to rebuild you with what you've learned, hopefully, during that year into who you're really meant to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some people say it's harsh. I mean, there's even uh, brothers in Africa who are like, that's torture, you know, mm-hmm. but our clan is a little more intense. Um, but we do see the benefits from it. You know, if you haven't gone through pain, you'll never truly experience joy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing but but commendment towards you for doing it so wonderfully. I mean, because you were kind of on public show. Yeah. I mean, any mistake you made, you know, our whole. (laughs) If it wasn't us, it was the whole religious Mm -hmm. community in Central Florida at large Mm because you interact with how many people every day. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So you did wonderfully. And Obatala is going to compensate you for that. Um, I'd love to talk about the Reiki thing. Mm hmm. You know, you speak of your friend Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, he sounded like a really interesting guy, a really impactful guy. Um, Reiki, what is it? And what after? how were you able to get to the point of becoming a Reiki master yourself? Well, it was through watching Johnny. Because um, I remember I would get Reiki from him. Yeah. And he would basically clean up my energy. Yeah. He would work on my chakras. Because we all have seven points of energy in our body. Yeah. That when they're clean and aligned, we feel so much better. Yeah. And I remember when I used to get Reiki sessions with him. Like, I would sleep, but I'd wake up, feel tired. Mm-hmm. But with him, I'd be out. I felt like I slept 15 minutes, but had the best sleep of my life. Wow. I'm like, how is this possible? And he, it was just amazing how good I would feel after it. And I'm like, well, Johnny, yeah, hook me up. I, I need to learn this. And he attuned me, explained stuff to me. And unfortunately, I only reached level one and two with him. So then I became um, Reiki three with another teacher in Virginia, Miss Alice, and she's just really wise, and her energy was so intense. And and I think I followed it because I felt it. Me, I, I'm I got to see to believe. Correct. I got to feel it. Yeah. But when I felt the energy and I felt myself giving the energy, I was blown away. Like, wow, this really is the real thing. And you feel it. So when I give it to people at the shop, you know, and I give them Reiki, and I clean their chakras, clean their energy, I mean, the sometimes they come in feeling so heavy sure. and kind of depressed. And when they leave, they feel like, oh, my God, I feel so much better. I'm like, yeah, that's Reiki. So it really helps the way you feel. And it really make you, align you spiritually. I noticed you use a lot of s- the stones. I've mm-hmm. seen the diagrams. Right. Um, you know, is I'm imagining, is there a stone associated with each chakra? Of course. And, you know, what? Um, talk to us a little bit about the head chakra. Because that's actually a concept that's really present in Ifa with the whole Odi thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which stone is associated with that, per se? And, you know, what are some of the things we have to do to really open that up? Because a lot of people on the channel ask us that, like my eye chakra, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I clean it up? I want to be more aligned with my destiny, more flow. What advice can you give to people like that? I like the clear quartz for the crown chakra. Okay. And I like the amethyst for the third eye chakra. So what's the difference? Forgive me. The third eye would be the the one located here. Which you would do with the clear quartz or the amethyst. Amethyst. Uh Uh-huh. And I would do the clear quartz for the crown chakra, which okay. is here, which is where we get our divine messages. To be in touch with the higher mm-hmm. power and exactly. stuff like that? Okay. So people that feel blocked, you know, I always work on their crown and their third eye where they feel like they're not getting enough information. That's always a good one to work on. What is the one chakra that we have to have aligned for the other ones to be able to flow? Is it the root? The heart and the root. The heart and the root. Mm-hmm. So where is the root chakra? It's by the... The butthole. Okay, then. Yeah. Understandable. Mm-hmm. And then um, the heart chakras. I of course, in the chest. Plexus, all mm-hmm. this over here. Why do these two need to be in alignment for the other ones to flow, per se? Oh, because um, it's interesting because if this one's no good, then these are going to be messed up. I don't know if it's because they're the first three here. So it affects those above it right, if exactly. this one's not flowing. Exactly. Okay. 
And the root chakra, that's where we hold all our traumas. And so it's very important. Is that why we're so tense? Like when we feel trauma or whatnot, we immediately tense up or like flex? It could be. Yeah. It could very well be. Okay. But, um. Because that's usually, I mean, if we're under, I mean, not, you know, if we're under extreme stress or good God, we're about to be attacked or mm-hmm. something critical, the first, you know, muscle that really gives out are the ones that, you yeah. know, live below the waist. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, I can only imagine. But yeah, it's always important to keep to clear those, because we hold on to things that no longer serve us. Yeah. Without realizing it, and it affects us. Yeah. It's very good to clean the energy, clear it, and um, I've seen p- change in people when they come on a regular basis. They're different from when they first started. Yeah. So, it really helps. Akira, you have taken us on a whirlwind of a conversation. I've been waiting to do this interview for years, and I remember we were going to do it before you did Orisha. You know, you ended up doing Odisha, and now we couldn't have you on camera for a year, and now here you are. Um, I tell you, you're one of the most complex human beings I've ever encountered. I mean, you really are a testament to fortitude, because to go from embalming bodies to helping people reform, defending society within your best of your abilities, initiating into Odisha, becoming a Reiki master. I mean, when you kind of look at your resume of life, um you're a testament to resilience, you know? And it was, to me, just knowing your story and hearing, you know, the various accounts and things we haven't even touched because, you know, there's so much we can get into. Um, It's really amazing. It really is. And I think, frankly, you're a fabulous example to our people of what it takes to be able to achieve and progress. And, And the real message there is to be able to withstand you know, as time goes on and we go through negative situations or adversities, it's just a matter of hanging on. And usually the most successful are the ones who don't quit on themselves. Um, so I, I give you all of that, you know. Any words for our viewers? Any any pieces of advice for those in life? I mean, you having so much experience, you know, what advice can you give to our viewership, the people that know you and don't about, you know, what's what's the best way or how's the best way to get through this thing called life? experience so much of what i've always lived by is my philosophy kind of like nike just do it yeah you know people kept telling me what i couldn't do when i was going to be an embalmer they're like you can't do that i'm like why not because you're small i'm like okay and i did it ceo same thing people kept telling me i couldn't do it but i'm like well i want to do it so i did it just do it if you want to do something do it don't let anyone influence you or change your mind that's what I would tell people. We're going to have to get an endorsement deal off of that one, Phil. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, Kira, thank you so much. Fabulous conversation. May Allah bless you. May the energies that revolve around you bless you. And, and may this, um, this interview, this episode, this material, may it serve others as a way to inspire and uh, motivate. So mm-hmm. congratulations, Miha. Fabulous, fabulous conversation. Phil. Wow. So before we even... Um Get into that. I gotta say something. <laughs> yo, what an what an interview, yo. <laughs> okay, so you came to me today. You say we're having Akira on the show. It's yes, gonna sir. be a wild one. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, no, okay. Akira right. doesn't seem like a wild <laughs> one, you know. When you go into <laughs> the Botanica <laughs> and she's behind that register, just like, yep, yep, yep. You're like, man, I, this lady. I had to mute my microphone because I'm sitting in the back while she's saying stuff. I'm from, I'm like, oh my god, oh Holy my god, cow, yeah. oh my god, oh my god. This is what I've been hearing for like four years <laughs> since you received Mano Orula, bro. Wow, um, yeah, that that is. Uh, <laughs> I'm, if that's this, not a podcast, I don't know what this, is. Joseph, this is the first time you were actually speechless for like yeah five seconds. You didn't say anything because you were just like uh. I mean, because what happens is, and I love that we're doing this recap right in the episode because unless you've actually seen things of that magnitude you the the human mind cannot fathom i mean when we look at evolution we've we've somewhat mentally castrated ourselves because there's certain things that via evolution the brain subconsciously is blocked out so unless you've seen a cadaver the brain can't fathom it you know especially the story with the father and child or the one where she's embalming this you know this robust woman or you know the the things you know a guy just falling dead in prison or, you know, a, a light flickering as her Reiki master friend. is. These are things that, unless you were there, you cannot fathom. And then to see somebody like Akira, who's as calm as can be, Akira is literally an ice cube. Like, there's nothing. Like, you'll have a disgruntled client come into the store 
she'll defuse that situation or Akira, I need you to do this. She's like, okay, father, you know, like, you know, Akira, I think knows me almost as well as my wife for obvious reasons, because we're just, we interact with each other every day. So when you look at the impression she gives off of, you know, just this very calm, decent woman, which she is, but then you see what she's gone through and for her to be able to still maintain that character it's completely unfathomable to me because I don't know if I'd be able to, and I've seen some things, you know, but I haven't seen that. So I don't know who I would be after those experiences and to see her still have the, 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 the stability from a personality and character standpoint, it, to me is a miracle based on what she's stated. Yeah. I got to give her a round of applause. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, uh, wow. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. I just want to make sure we, I'm sure we have shout outs or are there no shout outs. Yeah, we, we do have shout outs, but I do want to tell people if you, if you really enjoyed this episode, please, um, share it, man. Please share, share it. Make this. Sure you comment your thoughts, uh, your thoughts below. Cause this was definitely top five for me. If not, if not top three, if not yeah. top two, because we've never to be able to intertwine, all of the spiritual things that she's involved in, and then apart, all these real-world experiences, you know, that are so fascinating to the human mind and society, being that most people don't experience those things because either they don't want to or they're not from that environment. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't think of one other episode. Wow. Well, well let's get into some... Of the headphones, shout outs. Headphones, headphones. You guys don't need to wear. You guys can hear me, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't need to I just, you know, I'm an Definitely. addict of the uh, elevator music. Okay. So if for those of you who are unfamiliar with the channel, we do offer several different tiers of membership levels. Each different tier offers you different perks. So we're going to give a shout out to our members here. So uh, VIP members here, this is Bips. a shout out to Dennis Diaz. Thank you, Dennis. We got a seventh month shout out to it. He's this this guy here. He's an OG in the chat. We always love his, his participation. This Salute. is Robert Fuentes. Oh, yeah, Rob. What's good? Let's give a shout out to two new members, two new VIP members. We got Lisa B and Kid Glide. Nice. Welcome, guys. Thank you. All right. Let's give a shout out to our super fans now. We got Makaiva Williams. Makaiva. And we got a five-month shout-out. I hate that. <laughs> we got five-month shout-out to Shannon Torres. Shannon, thank you. And a seventh-month shout-out to Shannon. Thank you so much, guys. And if you know anybody that can gain some value from the group uh, membership program, please have them, uh, you know, in it. Definitely let them know about it. The podcast is everywhere. Um, Botanica Candles and More.com is up and running. The store is up and running. Oh, you broke 100,000 downloads. I didn't even tell you that. Excuse me? Yeah, 100,000. 100,000 downloads? For the podcast. I th Last time I checked, we were at 17,000, brother. No, for the audio podcast. That's sick. Yeah, because Apple hides their, their numbers. Oh. <laughs> Apple hides their numbers. So you're you're over, over 65,000 for Apple. I think you're like... 50,000 for Spotify. Good Lord. Well, guys, thank you so much for the support. We're about to be at 16,000 subscribers. I mean, what, what more can I say after a conversation like that? Thank you so much. God bless. And until next time, see the light. Peace.